many gigawatts of off-grid batteries already out there, but the new tech that's out there and the intelligence, again, coming back to the software and the control functionality and the intelligence of what these batteries can do is just mind-blowing. So that gets really cool. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Nigel Morris. He's been involved in solar for almost 30 years, and he's the head of business development for the last five years for Solar Analytics. He is listed as one of the top 20 energy influencers and hosts two solar podcasts, Solar Insiders and The Great Solar Business. He's also been involved in almost every aspect of the solar industry, including manufacturing, installing, selling, and designing solar monitoring and storage systems around the world. He brings great perspectives and insights on the podcast, being in the industry for almost 30 years. He talks also about the Australian solar market, which is the eighth largest solar market in the world. There are many interesting points that he talks about. Some of them are the importance of data for solar going forward, how grids will become more dynamic. And he talks about a concept called solar smoothing. Australia actually has some of the lowest prices to install solar. He talks about how companies in Australia can differentiate themselves. And also another big thing that he mentioned is that most of the world will be at grid parity when it comes to solar in the near future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have Nigel Morris. He's the head of business development at Solar Analytics, and he has two solar podcasts, Solar Insiders and Great Solar Business. Nigel, welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. Hi, Benoit. Great to talk to you all the way from Australia in lockdown. Good times here. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And technology is great that we're able to do this virtually and with the time difference. And I think you'll provide a lot of great perspective. You having almost 30 years of experience or having 30 years of experience in the solar industry and about the Australian solar market. I think it'll be a great perspective for our listeners to learn about your market. And a lot of our listeners are from the US and there's a lot of interesting things that are happening. So I appreciate you making the time out of your schedule to be here. You're most welcome, Ada. There's always lessons for us to learn both locally and from our international peers. So uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation too. Definitely. And I appreciate you reaching out, listening to our podcast and you know volunteering to speak on it. So I appreciate you reaching out. And it's been like great getting to know you and during the pre-interview and our email communication. And I'm excited again about this interview. So thank you again. It was interesting. One of the things that we talked about is the company that you work for at Solar Analytics and your role at the company. Can you talk more about Solar Analytics and what your role is in business development? Yeah, for sure. So Solar Analytics is a software company based in Australia, founded in Australia. And our mission is to get more solar on rooftops. And the way we do that is providing software services that help owners and help installers. And we celebrated, I think, our eighth birthday the other day. So we're still pretty young, but we've got 25,000 sites out there that we monitor. We do residential and commercial, mostly residential. And the key to what we do is really algorithm-based software to manage the performance. And so often consumers don't know what they don't know, right, when it comes to solar. And they don't know that they necessarily need to understand how they're using energy, when they're using energy. And, you know, as great as solar is, it doesn't always go perfectly. Sometimes you need some performance monitoring. It's like a dashboard for a car. You need to know what's going on. So that's what we do. My role there has changed over the years, like so many people's roles do when they become an old piece of the furniture. But uh, currently my role is doing business development work, looking after key accounts that we have and chasing new projects, looking for ways to solve problems so that we can increase our uptake in the market. And then the other part of my role is really solar evangelism, clearly after 30 years, I must like this gig. And I really continue to get excited about how solar can help people, whether it's you know, someone in a village in Papua New Guinea who just wants to be able to trade their fish fairly at a fair price and needs the energy to charge a phone or a radio, uh, right through to the almost 3 million people in Australia who now have solar on their rooftops. And you know our industry has a lot of great things about it, but it has some challenges. So there's always work to do to help educate consumers and make sure that the industry is doing the absolute best it can. So um, yeah, I spent about half my time 
banging on. <laughs> that is really helpful to know, Nigel. And it's interesting, you talked about solar evangelism. And obviously, you have two podcasts related to solar. What got you interested mm-hmm. into podcasting? And can you talk about how the two podcasts are different in their own way? It seems like <laughs> such a simple idea, hey? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So the main one that I do is called Solar Insiders. We started that about three years ago with an old friend of mine who runs a media empire. He is actually the leading renewable energy media person in Australia. His name is Giles Parkinson. And he runs a website called Renew Economy, a sister site called One Step Off the Grid, and a third site called The Driven, which is all about electric vehicles. And Giles and I have worked together over many, many years. I produce quite a bit of content because I can't help myself in the form of blogs over the years. And yeah, three years ago, I put the idea to him and said, you know what, we have all these great chats. If we could get together once every couple of weeks and have a chat about what's going on and kind of update people in the industry about some of the main issues that the industry is facing, I think there might be an opportunity there. And Two weeks later, we recorded our first episode. You know, we do an episode every two weeks. So that's Solar Insiders. And we cover a broad range of topics, uh, sort of spanning the energy and solar industry in Australia, because of course we are material now. We're material part of the network and are having a really big impact on the network and are affecting the cost of energy in Australia and, uh, you know, millions and millions and 300,000 more systems a year going in. So it's inevitably a bit about energy and a bit about solar. And I do slip in something about electric motorcycles, which we'll come back to, I'm sure. And then the second one that I started actually fell out of Solar Insiders because when I could travel, when I was doing the shows and expos around the country for solar energy, I took the opportunity to actually bail up a bunch of solar business owners and just hit them with five or 10 questions. And I kept asking the same questions over and over again to try and you know understand a little bit about the challenges that those businesses were facing, how they were navigating those challenges what the big lessons were that they'd learned, what the mistakes were that they'd made, what the cleverest things that they'd done were, all those types of things that you know can be really insightful for other business owners. And I ran a short series as part of Solar Insiders doing those interviews and realized pretty quickly that I needed more time, you know, in five or 10 minutes, I just couldn't dig deep enough. So that was where the idea of Great Solar Business was born. And uh, Great Solar Business is exclusively based on me interviewing business owners or really influential people in the solar industry who are really, you know, in the space with the idea being two things. Number one, what should solar businesses be preparing for? So it's very much about what's coming next. And secondly, the goal is always to sort of extract a few secrets of how to build a great solar business. So yeah, that's what I do for fun. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like you're doing what you love and what you're passionate about. You've been in the solar industry for 30 years, which is amazing. Can you talk about what got you interested in solar 30 years ago and how things have changed over that time? I know that's a lot to ask. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you the shortest version I can. I I think like most people, especially as a young man, you know, energy was something dad paid for. It was something I used by flipping switches. And that was about the extent of my thought of it. But when I was 18, I actually went to Europe. It's a sort of Australian tradition. You go to Europe, buy a combi and drive around and have a good time as an Aussie backpacker. And so I did that. And a very strange thing happened because it was in Germany, actually. We went in to buy our supplies and There were some tomatoes for sale and there were normal tomatoes at normal prices and there were some tomatoes that were really cheap. And we found someone who could speak English and said, why are these tomatoes so cheap and what does this sign translate to? And they said, well, these ones could have been irradiated by fallout from Chernobyl, so they're cheap. They're on special. (laughs) And it was actually a sort of, it was a life-changing moment for me because um, not only do we get some bargain tomatoes, but of course, it made me think about the real cost of energy and that never left me and then took me a bunch of years, but I've ended up working for four or five different companies now. I had my own business for a while in various parts of the solar industry. You know, in the early days, the only market really was for off-grid system. There was no on-grid market. It was entirely off-grid market, mostly serving hippies, runaways, or people who lived in a remote area running on diesels, a lot of work in the South Pacific, and dabbled in all sorts of renewables, not just solar, uh, micro hydro, wind, even a bit of biomass energy. So fantastic foundation, living very, very simply and you know, with very, very expensive solar panels back in the day. You know, I was very fortunate to benefit over the years. I worked with BP Solar for many years, who were the biggest solar company in the world during the time that, not because I was there, but it just happened to be while I was at the time I was there. So I was very fortunate. Wonderful company doing amazing things. And uh, 
Yeah, and then went on to form my own consultancy. So then spent you know six or seven years coaching solar businesses and doing a lot of industry forecasting and a lot of advocacy work. That's where I really got excited about you know getting my voice around what's going on in the industry and arguing for the industry. A lot of industry panels. Ran a retail business for a couple of years and solar analytics for the last five years. So that's the shortest history I can give you, but yeah. without raving on. <laughs> for sure. So it sounds like because of Chernobyl and the tomatoes that you realized that the impact of energy and what it could have and that renewables was a better solution long term, specifically solar. Is that? You nailed it. It just occurred to me there had to be a better way than irradiating, you know. A continent for sure um, like obviously that was what you were in western europe at the time right in chernobyl i was in russia so it was yeah. the cloud that was spreading over all sorts of rural agricultural areas that ultimately crept its way into those tomatoes that had been shipped in from somewhere yeah so you're exactly right it sort of struck me you know on a personal level and also on a global level that there was a lot of work to be done to you know reduce the risk associated with energy and to make it as clean as we possibly can so that we can all have the benefits that we have I'm not a puritan about it all you know people have to do what they have to do and you know I still use petrol and I use coal and I'm not a puritan about it at all but I think there are someone very wise once said to me you know if you can make one small change and take one small step today and make that normal, make that part of your life, you've achieved something. And imagine if everybody in the world did that. Just take one small step that's manageable for you. And then in a week or a month or a year, take another small step. And don't beat yourself up about not being able to you know, make the transition overnight. It doesn't happen for most people like that. So taking small steps and encouraging other people, I think, is the key. That's really the concept of compounding, right? Taking that and over time it really becomes substantial. And if everyone took a positive step, that will have such a great impact. So I really appreciate your solar evangelism because it really kind of helps people to get to that right step or to learn really about the industry. Well, I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky to have had uh, right livelihood for 30 years. And along with many, many others, I've got some great old friends. They're older than me, most of them, actually, in the US who I've dealt with over the years who are still floating around there who are also have been doing this for, in some cases, many years longer than me. And same in Australia, actually. We have a really strong old guard of pioneers who helped um, pave the way. And now it's equally exciting to, and in fact, really necessary to see young entrepreneurs and young business people coming through and getting just as passionate as we were when we started out. And, you know, it's a different game now. It's material business. It's a you know multi-billion dollar industry here in Australia now. So, you know, it's a tough business to be in, but the motivations of everybody are to, you know, make a good living and pay the bills and along the way, do something good. That's great to hear. And I think you're referring to the solar coaster, you know, the ups and downs of the industry. That's not just something with Australia, it's all over the world. And obviously being in the US, you know, we've also dealt with it as well. And, you know, can't wait for a time where, you know, it's competitive with fossil fuels or more competitive, which we're not that far away from. It's true. It's true. We talked about that just the other week, actually, and how in some parts of the world, I think I was reading an article out of Europe and they were talking about the sort of re-emergence of PPAs in Europe, which have I know have been very popular in the US over the years, and they've continued to have a place in our market as well. But they, in Europe, this article was talking about the fact that they're basically completely unsubsidized solar plant, large-scale solar plants generating PPAs at a competitive rate. And it's like, when you get there, you've landed. If you can deliver energy cheaper out of a solar plant without subsidies, uh, we're there, man. And um, we're so close to it in many parts of the world now. It's great. For sure. And the exciting thing is it's a technology, not a fuel. So the technology right. will continue to get better and more cost effective. You know, once you build a solar project, usually the operation and maintenance is, you know, so it's exciting as well from a technology perspective. And it's kind of the thing that I actually, that's a, the technology really excites. I'm a bit of a technology buff and, you know, really enjoy the technology side of it. And I think the interesting thing that the industry faces as a challenge now is we've kind of got the tech pretty damn good. There are some subtleties that we're working on and making constant efforts on, you know, around grid management now increasingly to make sure that those plants are behaving as a really dynamic part of the network and supporting networks, in fact. And we've got some amazing things going on down here in Australia around using both centralized and distributed solar to actually support grid reliability at a national level. And one of the biggest challenges we've had down here, to be honest, is, you know, especially in the large scale stuff, it's been driving the cost down without driving out the quality. 
you know, we have staggeringly low prices in Australia, some of the lowest in the world. And, you know, sadly, we've seen the pressure that that can put on what's otherwise very simple and reliable technology. But, you know, if you build it, put the foundations down right in a tropical area, a storm will come through and it'll tear all 10,000 panels up and blow them into the ocean. We had that happen a few years ago. If you don't get it right, you can have fires. If you don't have sophisticated enough gear to manage the energy flow so that you're working in beautiful orchestration with the networks, then you'll be booted off the network and you'll have assets sitting there not generating income. So it's all those subtleties now that our industry is dealing with. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. And I think too, like centralized power will be here as well and just coordinating distributed resources and centralized power to make it dynamic for reliability purposes is huge, especially as you see more distributed energy, you know, coming online. So that's a really interesting point. And, you know, this is where I think, you know, one of the big lessons that we've had in Australia where we are, we're a bit like the canary in a coal mine, you know. I remember back in the early days when we were regularly flying to the US to buy technology over there and we'd always have these conversations in boardrooms with technology providers saying, well, you know what, we'll see if it breaks. We'll see if this is really reliable because when you come to Australia, we've got ice and snow, we've got deserts, we've got tropical heat, we've got humidity, we've got sand. We're totally surrounded by ocean and salt air because everyone lives on the coast. So if it's going to break anywhere, it's going to break here. And the distances are huge between locations. So support is really, really challenging. So yeah, we're we're really a stress test. We're the canary in the coal mine for so much technology. And of course, along with that goes long, long, long grid lines and very seasonal loads, particularly large air conditioning loads. So we have a very spiky summer bias load on our networks, huge peak demand issues. If you go back 10 years, everyone was complaining about peak demand and how we had to do something about peak demand because it was costing a gazillion dollars to build the networks and all these millions of kilometres of very thin lines with relatively few consumers on them. It was, you know, the hub and spoke approach was nice when things were small and simple, but, you know, it's become a bit of a behemoth. So, you know, one of the challenges that we've had to grapple with here in Australia, particularly in South Australia, which times generates 120, 130% renewables. So we're already past 100% renewables in terms of peak generation at times through the benefit of terrific wind and terrific solar uptake down there, mostly residential rooftops, interestingly. There is some large-scale stuff there, but what transpired a few years ago was there was a big storm, power lines got blown over, and what happened? Well, the wind turbines uh, recognised the outage and the rules said you must isolate, so that all the wind turbines turned off dropping, you know, half a gig or so off the generation capacity. And then, you know, tens of thousands of solar systems cascaded offline as well, dropping, you know, several hundred more megawatts of generation offline. And so there was a system black. And politically, we, of course, got blamed for it. And they said, well, if the wind turbines and the solar hadn't gone offline, everything would have been fine, which we've sorted out now. And of course, that absolutely wasn't the case. But what it did result in was some new regulations. So some changes to our ride-through settings, which have been very conservative, sort of really based on 10 years before when ride-through settings were considered a risk aversion strategy. We don't want to electrocute anyone, but they failed to acknowledge that as time has passed, the ability to ride through voltage dips actually meant you could keep capacity online and actually support the grid. So we have new ride-through regulations that applied from September last year. And we also have, for the very first time, I think at this level of scale, a centralised remote disconnection capability. So what that enables our central network, a national central network manager to do is in the event that particularly where there's low demand and solar is, you know, really, really generating very, very strongly, it enables them to pull the solar back to prevent voltages from rising unnecessarily or to keep frequency under control, a variety of things they can do. And there is now a requirement, a legal requirement in South Australia that every residential system must have the ability to be remotely and centrally turned off for the moment. It's happened four or five times already, interestingly, half an hour here, an hour there, for grid stabilisation purposes, managed by a central organisation, which is just mind-blowing to me. It's a pretty crude way of doing it, but the second phase of this, which is due to come out very soon, is dynamic export control. So what that will enable consumers to do is that, again, it'll be a legal requirement. Their solar system, their little three, four, five kilowatt solar system must have dynamic export control. And if there's an event, again, centrally, a command is sent to the inverter that says, okay, you cannot export, but you can self-consume. 
So there's a message sent to trigger the inverter to change its behavior. The consumers have the opportunity to continue to use their energy to cook their barbecue or keep the pool filter on or run their air conditioner. And if they're clever, they'll be turning all those loads on to soak up all that solar so that it's not being wasted. And so that will enable, if you think about it, it's so exciting to think of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of solar systems semi-autonomously and dynamically adjusting to what's going on in the network and what's going on at each home and what's going on with solar. I mean, it's quite staggering to think of it doing that, but we're almost there and it's going to happen almost by itself. I haven't heard of that in the US and really it's amazing, like smart energy meters and it's just the early stages of that. And it's just to me very interesting how dynamic it is, but it'll be even more dynamic in the future, which is really exciting. Yeah, it is. And, you know, South Australia is just a test. We already know it's probably going to roll out in the near future in other states. We know other states are talking about it. They're trialing different variations on it and, you know, fine-tuning it. And there have been some challenges along the way that we've learned. You know, connectivity has been a major challenge. You know, when you're reliant on being connected to those systems to dynamically manage them, connectivity becomes really important. So a shitty Wi-Fi connection isn't going to cut it. You know, you really need to move to some better tech, you know, for solar installers, ensuring that those systems are connected and remain connected becomes really important. So that means that software like ours becomes increasingly important because you need that uh, feedback loop to know what's going on and why and be able to fix things. I think there's not a person in the solar industry in Australia who doesn't think that within a year or two, we're going to see mass orchestration of hundreds of thousands of solar systems on a minute-by-minute basis across the country. I mean, it is absolutely the future here. And the only question is, how soon is it going to come? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. That's pretty amazing to hear. And it's interesting because you were mentioning about solar analytics and providing that information to the grid. Can you talk about like how does data help the solar industry? That was like one example, but there's so much data that you're getting from the customers. How does that really help the industry? It's a really interesting one. I mean, it's funny going back all those years ago, one of the reasons I started getting excited about data, and let me say, when they started trying to teach me algebra and about statistics and data in high school, I went, I'm never going to have a use for this in my entire life. You're wasting my time. I'm out of here. You know, I couldn't see a real application for it. And here I am in a data company. But when I started in solar and supporting people with off-grid systems in very, very remote areas, the, the first question was, okay, let's understand what's happening with your battery voltage. And we had zero data. We might have a little volt gauge somewhere, but, you know, really didn't tell you enough. And so in the first six months of working in solar all those years ago, I realized the value of data. And over the years, the technology has got cheaper and better and cheaper and better. And of course, software's become ubiquitous in our lives now. And we've got access to, you know, supercomputers in our pockets. So it's been a a revelation to see it change. One of the key things that solar analytics can do, for example, is you know any monitoring system can tell you what the solar system produced. What we can tell you is whether the solar system is producing what it should have produced. And so we do that by using satellite data and weather data and benchmarking against local systems and looking at our network through the use of AI. And we're able to forecast whether that system is performing at the right level. And so that enables you to detect faults quickly. And there are so many stories of people who weren't monitoring their solar system at a residential level, thought it was too expensive, didn't understand the value, and then six months down the track realized that the system had failed or switched off or a fault had occurred. They didn't know, and they've lost six months' worth of revenue. Well, guess what? They just paid for the monitoring. So at its heart, that's the secret source to what we've got is a technology and a software service that even at a residential level is affordable to do forecasting that previously was only possible in large-scale stuff. But we're now moving on to you know the remote control stuff and the centralized control that we were talking about in South Australia. We're actually just next week about to launch a new service where we're moving actually beyond just helping people understand what the solar is doing and how much it's saving them and what their loads are and when to consume energy best. But we're actually moving into a new phase where we're going to be providing on advice on whether you're on the best energy plan. And, you know, there are massive opportunities for consumers to save money by switching to a plan that suits their demand profile better, suits their solar generation better, and is available in their area. And so we've spent a couple of years developing a very complex piece of software and a bunch of engines behind our dashboard that provide a very simple outcome for a customer. And that is 
by the way, you could save 200 bucks a quarter if you switch to this provider and it's solar targeted. So we're now moving into the space of trying to expand the savings potential beyond just the solar panels, but also into energy plan management, potentially EV plan management, VPP management, battery management, all those types of things. We also play a very active role in anonymizing and aggregating our data to help expand the capabilities of the network. So For example, if there's an outage somewhere, the central government managers of our network will often come to us and say, please describe to us how the solar systems behaved when this event occurred so that we can see what we might need to do in the future so that we can develop new policies, so that we can develop new regulations. So having literally tens and tens and tens of thousands of solar systems all around the country gives us actually better visibility to what's happening on the network than the networks have. They don't have tens of thousands of nodal monitors. They don't have it at the household level. They might have it at a transformer level sometimes. They certainly have it at a network level, but they don't have nodal detail of voltage and power factor and frequency and behavior of distributed gen. We do. And so we're very, very keen to benefit the wider uptake of renewables and the wider improvement of networks and the electrical infrastructure in general by using our data for good. So we do that too. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 that's like amazing to think about that all the data that you have from all those different nodes from all your different customers and that you could basically plan from historical events that have happened and basically take that to be like predictive, which is a huge opportunity. That's really interesting. It is. I mean, a beautiful example, a graphic example that we've seen is we did a couple of exercises in mapping in real time using little colored dots to show the power output of solar systems across a distributed area. And you could actually plot weather systems traveling across a town or a city, and you could see the rise and fall in solar across that city. And we did that in a little graphic example just to show colored dots of the energy flows and how it affects networks and looking at you know the challenges of a cloud impact, particularly on smaller grids, is a really challenging issue. And there we, in fact, have some areas in Australia where a thing called solar smoothing is a requirement so that they don't throw the generators offline on those small networks. So if a cloud event's coming, they need predictive, they need the capability to ramp various things up and down. Then they might release energy from batteries to support the network as that cloud event's coming, or they might throttle back solar to, you know, again, manage voltages and so forth. So, you know, yeah, software gives us the ability to unleash so many things, whether it's, you know, at the macro level, developing new network that are smarter and better and being more predictive, or whether it's helping homeowners to just extract a bit more saving out of their solar system and get more value out of it. So yeah, a ton of things you can do. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty amazing. And it's interesting because you mentioned how Australia has the cheapest solar projects in the world, meaning the lowest cost to build. I know you mentioned some of the negatives of that. Can you talk about how solar companies could be successful selling you know, at these low prices and what the pricing is usually for these types? It's a topic we all love to talk about in the solar industry because, you know, especially if you've been in it for a few years, I was selling my first solar panels for, you know, close to $20 a watt per (laughs) solar panel. And now solar panels are, you know, 25 cents a watt. And at the bottom end of our market, you can buy a solar system in Australia for about 30 cents a watt US installed, right? That's amazing. 30 cents a watt. We have some rebates, but they're not enormous these days. There's a bit in there. It's probably unsubsidized. It's probably more like 60 or 70 cents a watt installed, but it's still very cheap, right? (laughs) And we have thousands of solar companies. We have somewhere in the order of four or 5,000 solar companies around Australia. Of course, like all markets, you've got, you know, a small number who are sort of huge and 
Goliath, and then a long tail of small companies. So many, many thousands of solar companies. And the perpetual challenge is with that much competition and at 30 cents US a watt, how on earth do you make money? How do you survive? And that's been a challenge for decades in this country and, you know, the source of a lot of pain. You know, the last, when I was running a consultancy, one of the things I used to do was track solar bankruptcies on a regular basis. And, you know, last count, there was a thousand solar closures or bankruptcies sort of in a three or a four year period. So, you know, really, really volatile brutal, very competitive, very low margin industry with very, very high levels of competition. So very, very challenging. What that has universally taught the industry, though, is that the key to distributed residential solar or to success in it nowadays is about operational efficiency. It is about how do you systematize more? How do you add levels of checks and balances that you know are in your business that allow you to understand which way to head or what to do or how to respond or so forth? Design software, all those elements that come in, but really at the end of the day, apart from the normal marketing and sales tactics that everyone has to become increasingly sophisticated about, I think the key now is operational efficiency. And there's a huge emphasis on that. I'll give you one example. One example is fairly large solar business that I was chatting to recently who was describing to me that, you know, they got a fairly big call center inbound and outbound. Their reps, uh, they train them all the time. They spend a huge amount of time and energy training them to make sure they can answer questions intelligently and deal with with the issues. And what they realized was that this was a great application for AI. And they actually invested in building an AI system that listened in on the calls, heard the questions and popped up from a database the five or three most likely answers to that question in front of the rep while the customer was still asking the question. So what that enabled them to do was ramp up the skill and knowledge level of reps to bring in new reps very quickly and give them you know, a script of potential answers so that they were able to provide better service. And so we're already seeing AI move into you know the call center world in solar. It's amazing too. You mentioned as well with solar analytics and your use of AI and just like the incorporation of AI, not just for solar, but energy and obviously a lot of, you know, across our whole ecosystem. So it's interesting to hear that perspective. It is. You know, there's so much opportunity with data and understanding how to do things better, how to use energy better. EVs is the next big wave that we see here, of course, and there are already a lot of early adopters dumping their excess solar into their EV. In fact, I've got two EVs down in my shed and, you know, I do it manually by just plugging them in at the right time. But I look forward to the day when, you know, EV chargers come as standard with capabilities of absorbing excess solar and charging them at low cost, you know. Yeah, for sure. And that's interesting that you're talking about EVs and chargers. Is the residential battery storage market very popular in Australia? It is. And in fact, I would hazard a guess that we're not one of the largest residential battery markets in the world. We certainly would be in the top three or so. I think on average, over the last couple of years, it's been about 30,000 or 40,000 systems per year installed. I remember going back a few years when it first kicked off, we did lots of work trying to imagine what the uptake would be and in fact modelled it on the uptake of solar and looked at how solar grew from you know, a completely uneconomic proposition that was really domain of early adopters only. And yet, you know, people would pay 20,000 bucks for a solar system that had a 15-year payback and you know, 50,000 a year, if I recall correctly, wow. would do that. And you go, wow, okay, so there's clearly a market for people who want to do that. They're still out there. They're probably ready for an upgrade and to add a battery. So we expected easily in the early phase, 50,000 a year. We haven't got there though, Benoit, which is interesting. We've got close, but we haven't quite got there. And we've had some fits and spurts with batteries in Australia, even though there's 10, 20, 30, 40,000 a year going in. What has proven to be the challenge is really three things. Number one, battery systems are complicated. Compared to slapping a solar system on the roof and an inverter on the wall, installing, connecting, commissioning, programming, supporting, and keeping operational a battery is much more complicated, much more complicated. And the industry dived in at a rapid rate and then suddenly went, whoa, hang on, things are going wrong here or customers are complaining or this isn't delivering what we thought or Jeepers, there's 30 different programmable modes in this battery. Which one's the right one for the customer? How do I support it? Oh my gosh, this one's caught fire, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it took off and then it slowed a bit as the industry went, hang on, we've got some work to do. We had a bunch of battles around safety and, you know, regulations and it took us a 
while to kind of get those under control. And of course, in the meantime, the cost of batteries has gone up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. I think it's clear now that, you know, the technology has really got pretty good now. The prices are kind of pretty good. The bulk of the savings still come from the solar PV on the roof. There's no doubt about that. But through either incentive programs or VPP programs or other mechanisms, we're now seeing solar increasingly being an economic proposition that people can swallow. So it's definitely starting to grow. But it's still, you know, geez, I was talking to a retailer yesterday and I said, ah, typically 10% of people buy batteries. Am I right? He said, yep. That's been where it's at, but actually we're at 35% this year. So, you know, we're definitely seeing it grow. And in some areas, it's as high as 50 or 60% of sales have batteries attached. So definitely growing, but still got some challenges to leverage everything we need out of it and make it work effectively. Yeah, definitely. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens the next two to three years as battery prices keep coming down, how much of the penetration will increase. And that's exciting to hear about 35% to, you know, the retailer you're talking to. I think cumulatively, we've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them installed now over the last few years. This is only the on-grid stuff, of course, long history and many gigawatts of off-grid batteries already out there. But uh, the new tech that's out there and the intelligence, again, coming back to the software and the control functionality and the intelligence of what these batteries can do is just mind-blowing. So that gets really cool. Yeah, and I think that's another key point to reiterate is that software is key and the intelligence of the software and what they're doing. And it's interesting to hear what the solar analytics is doing and the intelligence that it's creating for its customers and the grid operators and all the other benefits, you know, also figuring out how to handle, you know, challenging situations with potential outages and things like that. So The unique thing about Australia is our incredibly high penetration rates, both on rooftop 50, 60 plus percent of rooftops have solar in many, many areas of Australia. Not all. So in about 25, probably closer to 30% nationally on average now, rooftops have solar. So huge levels of penetration, more than 100% of peak generation at times. So we have a negative curve in many parts of Australia in the peak of a sunny day because there's more generation from rooftops and large scale than there is demand. So, you know, all of those things are coming into play. And the overwhelming realisation that you can take from Australia is that, you know, when you see solar succeed like this and become very, very, very high levels of penetration, you have to stop thinking about your solar business as being an individual solution supplier where I can just come in and help this customer and put some solar on and put some batteries in and walk away. And that's the extent of your role. In Australia, that is no longer the extent of your role. The extent of your role now also expands to being part of the national energy network. And you have to accept that you're not going to get to just slap it on. You're going to have to put it on incredibly cost efficiently, manage it on an ongoing basis, help the customer adapt as things change over time, and make sure that that is delivering good services for the network. That's the number one lesson I would say, actually, is when you do get to these penetration levels, you have to change your perspective a little bit. I'm surprised how much, you know, solar is actually online on rooftops. I mean, 50% substantial in that it's outpacing peak demand as well at certain times, which is actually happening in the U.S. as well, in California and Massachusetts and some other places. I don't know if you're familiar with the whole duck curve concept. And for our audience who might not be familiar, it would be great if you could like briefly explain that because that was kind of like the point that you were mentioning before. Yeah, and its impact of solar generation. Normally, you know, when you look at a demand curve or when a network looks at a demand curve, it's very predictable. They can look across their network and say demand's going to peak in the morning over breakfast. It's then going to flatten out during the day when everyone goes out to their office. There's usually a bit of a build-up towards the industry coming online. And then it kind of settles throughout the day. And then it dwindles towards the afternoon, peaks again at dinner, and then slumps into the evening. And, you know, that's what most network demand profiles kind of look like. But as you inject more and more solar into that, particularly in those areas where demand is very low in residential areas because everyone's gone to work, well, at least this was pre-COVID, right? So things have changed now. But pre-COVID, everyone would vacate their homes and the solar system would be there spinning the dial. And so what would happen is the demand curve would just go negative. And I remember chatting with a network engineer probably 10 years ago who did a presentation. He said, have a look at this curve. Look at this curve. We've never seen a curve like this. We never imagined in our lives 
that we would see negative demand to the tune of megawatts, megawatts and megawatts and megawatts. And so that curve just dips below the line and ends up having a somewhat duck shape. So yeah, we got duck curves coming out of the wazoo. That's why networks are freaking out actually, because you know they can't control that. Well, right. they've done their damnedest, but it's been a bit of a crude stick. So we're now moving to dynamic and intelligent uh, way of helping to manage that, hopefully. I would assume with more storage coming online could potentially be an easier way of potentially managing managing that than doing like force outages for you know 30 minutes at a time or whatever. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the storage is sort of the holy grail of how to solve this problem. And there have been a number of programs designed to do exactly that. But of course, you know, the hope is that consumers will pay for that solution by buying batteries, which is a fairly big ask when there are challenging economic propositions. I think the networks and the central organisations have realised that although that's coming and there's a great place for it, we can actually already do a whole lot with inverters. So adding batteries is awesome. But we can do an awful lot with intelligent inverter behavior and centralized management and orchestration. So, you know, bring batteries on for sure. But, you know, you really can do an awful lot without them too. And that's interesting too, like what you mentioned as well, like obviously the consumers are paying for the batteries, but if there's a way to incentivize battery backup, ancillary services, all the different functions of the battery where the consumer can potentially get some sort of payback, with like in the US, we use time of use rates. That potentially could be like a huge opportunity or some sort of financing solution that third party comes in with. And you're exactly right. And we've had a whole bunch of dabbles. It's an interesting phase in our industry's growth because, you know, being a relatively small market for batteries, we've got finance, we've got VPPs, we've got, you know, different energy plans that specialize in batteries. But of course, it's a pretty small market. So it's pretty hard to you know, scale anything materially in that space. So it's the domain of cowboys and experimenters and innovators at the moment. Now, I'm not saying they're all cowboys by any means. And for what it's worth in Australia, cowboys are bad, not a good thing. <laughs> it's someone who's a bit reckless and a bit wild west. It is the domain. And I was actually chatting with someone the other day, lamenting the fact that they had just gone through the detail of a VPP offer that was in the market that customers were switching to that was spurious beyond belief. I mean, the claims that they were being made, that were being made about how much value you'd get out of this VPP program and how much revenue you'd get as a customer and why that made the payback so good for the battery, they were just wildly optimistic and unlikely to ever be delivered. And so, you know, it is challenging right now while the market is, and it's always challenging when the market is not fully at scale because people are desperate and hungry and they're experimenting and they're trying things. So, yeah, we've still got a way to go. But, you know, one of the announcements that actually came the other day, again, from one of our federal bodies, is the proposal, the industry's calling it the solar tax. It is proposed that by 2025, so three or four years out, if you export solar energy, you will be charged an export fee, right? Not paid a feed-in tariff, or potentially you'll get a feed-in tariff, but the networks will have the ability to charge you an export fee. Now, on the surface of it, that sounds crazy, but what it's about is changing that behavior again. How can we get you to yourself consume more? How can we incentivize you? We've played around with tariffs and structures and stuff, and that's just become a minefield because, again, because of competition, it's hard for consumers to choose. But we do have this proposal on the table. Now, the, the bad side is that it means if you're reckless with your solar or you don't pay attention and you export lots, you will actually be penalized for that. The theory being that the penalties will go to the networks to help them build the networks better so that they can be smarter, so that they can accept those exports without consequences. So that's a good proposition. It's kind of user pays principle. It's bringing distributed solar into the domain of all people who use the network at a large scale where, you know, you pay rates for pushing energy down the wires. And so it brings us into that domain. However, the quid pro quo is that what that means is that networks should start unleashing the ability to connect more. And we have every single day, we have export limits placed on domestic homes where they say you could, the maximum you can ever export is three kilowatts. You can put as much as you want on, but you're going to be limited. Or in many cases, it is zero export already. So you simply cannot export. You must set your solar system to zero export. So you can self-consume all you like, generate as much as you like, but don't ever put it on my network. We already have those rules in place in many areas. And so getting the networks up to speed and traditionally have sort of taken a sledgehammer approach to this saying, well, I've got a problem in this part of my network, so I'm going to make my entire network zero export. Solar people be damned. 
well, that has to change because there are lots of opportunities for networks to benefit from energy at the right time, the right amount. So yeah, the solar tax is something that's been mooted. There's been a lot of debate and challenge about it. And of course, solar owners don't want to pay network charges to export their energy. At the end of the day, I'm hopeful that we'll have a rational debate about it and we'll land on a set of rules and regulations that work for everyone. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. I didn't know about the solar export tax and I could see how the solar owners would be against that instead of thinking about potentially how it could change the behavior for the network. But obviously that makes sense where they're coming from too. Within 24 hours of the announcement, I saw a post by a consumer on one of our Facebook pages saying, so I've heard about the solar export tax from my husband and I have been talking about it and it would seem that solar doesn't make financial sense anymore. Am I right? So, you know, we're already seeing consumers become very consumed and confused by the implications of this. So there's a huge task for the industry to educate consumers that on average, it's going to cost you 10% of the revenue from your solar system. It just means the payback is going to go from four years to 4.6 years or whatever the number is. It's not going to demolish the wonderful benefits that you get from a financial perspective from solar, but it will change it a little bit. But let's get some technology in there that can help you solve this. Let's put a dynamic export control solution in there. Let's make sure you've got an app that can tell you when there's a challenge coming that you need to do something slightly different. Can we trigger your electric car charger? Can we trigger your pool pump? Is there a better plan that would actually benefit you? So, you know, can we switch you so that, you know, you're not impacted so heavily? These are all the types of things that we're now racing to put in place before 2025 so that we've got some sophistication for customers. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And that's interesting. That doesn't really impact the payback that substantially. So what are future trends, Nigel, that you're seeing in the industry? I always try to defer to people who are on the ground actually selling and you know running businesses because they're the best test rather than me sitting in my ivory tower made of ones and zeros. Almost without exception, everyone says... They really want that sophistication, you know, more in-home automation. They want everything else. And that's been slow coming. It has proved to be extraordinarily challenging to do well, to do at scale and to do agnostically across lots of different technologies and brands and products. It is very challenging. I think automation and integration of all those things, making things just seamless and easy and smooth and all those kinds of things is something consumers constantly ask for and look for opportunities. And I think we'll see that. We're already seeing it. I think the best example of it arguably is in the electric vehicle space already with the very small numbers that we have. That crosses over into batteries as well, of course. I think the second trend that we've been hanging on for dear life for is electric vehicles. You know, our electric vehicle uptake is one of the lowest in the world. It's absolutely appalling, not because consumers don't want it, but because frankly, our government thinks that no one's going to get to travel their wide brown land in an electric vehicle and it's only for the domain of the mega rich. So sadly, we have very, very low uptake of EVs, but that you can smell it changing. You can smell it in the air. And every time you have a conversation with someone about it, you know, the conversation and the reluctance and the skepticism has changed dramatically over the last year. And so in the next few years, I expect we will see dramatic upswing in EVs and, of course, the required charging infrastructure. That's going to create changes in the way people use energy. It's also going to create changes in the demand that's on the network for charging those electric vehicles. And so there's going to be a big shift that comes out of all of that. And of course, it's both a substantial load, but it's quite controllable. And it's also a battery on wheels. And I've loved the concept of V to G for many years. And particularly, you know, where we have long distributed thin lines, you know, the ability to prop the network up by using an electric vehicle is an obvious theoretical solution. Still a whole lot of technical challenges to get that orchestrated the way we can orchestrate uh, distributed solar. It's interesting because we're talking about the proliferation of electric vehicles. You are passionate about electric motorcycles I enjoyed the review that you did on the Harley electric motorcycle. Can you talk about your passion about it? I actually had a friend out of the US send me a lovely photo the other day from 20 years ago, would you believe, when I visited and he had built his own electric motorcycle. He's a mad motorcycle guy like me. I've always been around motorbikes and it's my passion and my joy. And uh, he'd built an electric one. And, and when I visited uh, 20 years ago or so, he said, no, I'd just take my electric bike for a ride, rode it down this hill, the battery went flat, and I had to push this lump of a thing back up the hill to his house, which <laughs> a disappointing first experience, shall we say. 
But I came back home and every time I rode my internal combustion engine motorcycle, love it as I did, I couldn't help thinking, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. I got to feel the torque. I got to feel the quiet, seamless delivery of power without a gearbox or a clutch and this inherent simplicity. And I thought, oh, this will come. It took me 11 years before I got there. But nine years ago, I got my first electric motorcycle, actually a Californian company out of Santa Cruz called Zero Motorcycles, who were early pioneers in this space. I got a very early 2010 Zero, which was just a joy, but of course, very limited performance, challenges with reliability, and very, very limited on range. Fortunately, I managed to upgrade a few years later and move to a later model, which I still have today. And I have a 24. 14 zero, which you know, I've had my challenges over the years with, but it still goes, it still thrills me every time I ride it. And I still have that amazing smile on my head when I'm riding along with a bunch of other bikes. This is simple and very, very low cost. And I can just punch this out of a corner without having to change gears, watch me go. So I get all the thrills and joys. And then on my passion for riding and riding and writing about electric motorcycles particularly has led me to get along to a bunch of test rides. And I've been very lucky to test ride the live wire. And I actually got one on long-term test two weeks before lockdown hit us in Sydney. It was supposed to be a couple of weeks. And I think I'm now at two months and they keep saying, well, you can't bring it back because of lockdown. There's no point. So just hang on to it. So Benoit, I am the only person in Sydney who thinks the lockdown's really cool because I have a $50,000 Harley Davidson live wire in my garage that my only mission in life is to ride it every day, at least. I'm lucky I have some areas, even within lockdown near me, that are good riding roads. Yeah. And, you know, again, coming back to the tech piece, right? I've got one of the, the most sophisticated pieces of electric motorcycle technology in the world today in my shed. And, you know, what this bike can do is just amazing. It's all very subtle. It's all buried underneath the skin. But having ridden bikes, electric bikes for many, many years, I can see what's going on. I can appreciate the sophistication that you get through controller advancements that allow you to have a precise throttle management system, for example. You know, throttle control is everything on a motorcycle. And the throttle control and the preciseness and the variability and the intelligence that's allowing the bike to actually do some things automatically for me so that I don't crash it. I came out of a corner the other day, actually, and punched the throttle and I had everything dialed up. And I punched the throttle while I was leaning over and the bike paused before the power came on. And my initial reaction was, oh, that was disconcerting. But what I realized was that the angle control and the traction control were actually doing their job. And they were saying, Nigel, you're an idiot. You're going to crash this bike. We're not going to give you that much power. Yeah. It saved me an embarrassing phone call to Harley Davidson. <laughs> gave me a momentary pause and then delivered all that power for me. So before, in, you know, in a split second, it had made a really intelligent decision for me. And it's that level of sophistication that I'm very grateful for, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, you wouldn't want to bring the live wire back to Harley Damage. For sure, that's great. You know, That would be bad. <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> well, this has been a great interview on the Solar Maverick podcast. Nigel, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. If the audience wants to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Certainly, probably LinkedIn or uh, Facebook are the easiest ways. I'm pretty prolific on there and trying to share as much info as I can. The podcasts are Great Solar Business and Solar Insiders are available on Spotify or any other good podcasting app. And I always love hearing stories and sharing stories with people. So don't hesitate to reach out. This has been a great interview again, Nigel. Thank you for making the time. And it was great having you. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.